In 2019, there were 76,852,000 women aged 16 and over in the labor force. That represents close to half, about 47% of the total labor force. Women's labor force participation is critical for the future of work. There are people who estimate that women are more likely than men to lose their jobs due to automation. Over half, an estimated 58% of the workers in the most at-risk occupations are women. Latinas are also the most likely to suffer, with one in three working in a high-risk field. This is why today I welcome Michelle Hines, an audacious woman who has been recruiting for over 15 years in industries such as airlines, heavy equipment, and now grocery retail. She has a master's in organizational management and a vivacious appetite for life. So, Michelle, what drew you to recruiting? You know, I, I just, I've always enjoyed the puzzle pieces of trying to find uh, the right person for the right job and the interview process to uh, unveil what people's talents are and how they fit. It's, it's just really exciting to me. So I've always enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Solving those problems and finding all the pieces that fit to, to make some magic happen. Sounds like an exciting thing. Absolutely. So the recruiting process is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. And I think that there's some things out there that are showing a little bit more of the process and what that looks like. But what do you wish more people knew and understood about the recruiting process? Um, For the recruiting process, what I would encourage everyone to do is make sure that you have completed applications. Uh, I know this can be time consuming, um, but with those applications, there's probably some questions that the company has put in Um, to the application that's important to their culture. Um, They are looking at those answers to make sure that the person um, has that potential to be a good fit for the role that they have open or just a good culture fit for their company. Again, I know applications can take a long time. Um, When I was going through a a job search a couple years ago, I timed myself and uh, completing an application took anywhere from 15 minutes to even 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but it's worthwhile in the end uh, to make sure that you have as much information out there as possible. So I really encourage that. And um, always remember that recruiters are are typically gatekeepers to open positions. They have talked to the hiring manager. They may not be a um, subject matter expert or, or an expert in that particular department or field or what have you, but most likely they've had some in-depth conversations with the hiring manager. They have a good sense of what that person's personality is like, and they're doing things accordingly uh, based on those conversations. I would encourage a good relationship with the recruiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in, like, in encouraging that good relationship with the recruiter, there's some pretty common things that are going around as advice today. Like when you're looking for jobs is you find the job, you apply for the job, and then trying to connect to the recruiter and or hiring manager on LinkedIn. Do you think those things are beneficial? Is that good advice? Is that kind of a drop in bucket or does it depend? You know, I I have to say it depends, and I know that's vague. Uh, It all depends on how much the company utilizes LinkedIn or those resources. And it gets complicated because different companies do focus on different resources. I've worked in different types of industries, and LinkedIn is not always the biggest resource out there for that particular industry when you get into Uh, more blue collar work and that kind of thing, then you're probably going to have to use other resources to find search for good candidates. So I think 
what my piece of advice to answer that is, is in your industry, like IT or uh, engineering or those um, those types of positions, most likely LinkedIn is, is, is a good resource. So industry specific and knowing your industry and what industry standards are is mm-hmm. basically the thing. One of the other pieces, right? There's a lot of ATS systems that are going around, like most companies use them. There's lots of different flavors of them. And they all work pretty much the same, right? They're trying to look for keywords and filter candidates out based on whatever parameters the company set. And so in that, you're not necessarily getting your resume out to the recruiter directly or to the hiring manager, to the company right away because of those ATS systems. Do you feel like those are valuable or are they causing some other problems that you may need to do more networking to actually be able to get positions anymore? It all depends on the company's philosophy on looking at those applications. And unfortunately, as an applicant, most likely you're not going to know how they handle those types of situations. Um, but I just to reiterate, completed applications, if you have an incomplete application, that is a good way to get you into a bucket that you're not going to be seen. So um, that's that's another side effect of that. I think it also depends on the market and the need for applications or the need for candidates and everything. Um, A lot of, uh, for me as a recruiter, I have always tried to see through what people's talents are and see if it really is a fit. There's all different types of candidates out there, different education levels. This a uh, hiring manager might have more flexibility with a particular position than um, looking for someone who's an absolutely a perfect fit. Um, a lot of times people are just looking for the right personality. So um, based on the need, I see, uh, I think ultimately those applicant tracking systems, I think they're gonna be a problem um, mm-hmm. because they are going to pick and choose those words and it's not necessarily the right fit for that position. Um, I, I, I try to put eyes on as many applications as possible. Um, I look at the incomplete bins and you're going to find lots of recruiters who do that as well. I could have an incredibly experienced candidate for the position that I'm looking for, but if they're not the right personality type, if they're not a good culture fit, I got to move on because they're not going to work, um, for that given position. And recruiters are always thinking about that as well. and trying to balance those things. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's important that cult, that company culture fit is not just for the company, but also for the person applying for that position. Like you don't want to be in a company that you don't feel like you're a fit for. Like that's a drain on both sides of that equation. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at resumes and cover letters, what, what advice would you give? What's the good, the bad, and the ugly of those? Like what should you absolutely avoid all the way to must have in those things? Uh, for me in particular, when it comes to cover letters, please, please, please make sure that you have the correct cover letter for the correct company. Yeah. Uh, it is really tough to tell me how interested you are in my company and how I'm the lead employer that you're looking at when I'm getting a cover letter from another company. And it's it's a mistake. It's easy to make. I've done it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I will tell you, it is the first thing that hiring managers look at, um, and it's it's easy to kind of pass on, especially if you're telling um, people or when you're interviewing or uh, you're you're saying things like, "This is my lead. This is my top 
um, mm. choice of where I want to go. And I see that you've, you're saying that to other employers as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> kind of loses a little bit of its weight, right? It's true. It's true. But it's a mistake. It happens. And I will tell you, um, when it comes to mistakes in the hiring or the uh, application process, interview process, what have you, forgive yourself every single time, every single time, because you're not alone. Everybody does it. Um, you and I could do a podcast on all the interviews that I have done that you'd be surprised that I'm a recruiter. So, <laughs> um, everybody makes mistakes and that is how you learn. That is how you grow and develop. And, um, sometimes those mistakes, I will tell you some of the places that I've interviewed at where I did not get the position. It, it, it was in my best interest, no matter how much I thought that I, um, that I really dug the culture and everything thought it was a potential good fit. In actuality, what, what can happen a lot is I'm interviewing with somebody that I feel like is really nice and very genuine and that does not a good company make. So just make sure you're keeping those things in mind. And, and again, that, that forgiveness all the time, every time, um, you want to learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. hundred percent. But, um, uh, the forgiveness really helps. <laughs> yeah. And like hunting for a job is already daunting and tiring. And there's so many emotions that got brought up into it. So the being gentle to yourself is absolutely key in the process. Like otherwise, I don't know. I don't know how you keep going. If you, if you aren't being gentle with yourself, plus all the other pieces that come along with a job hunt. So the cover letter piece, that's something bane of my existence. I wholly do not enjoy doing it. I don't particularly enjoy doing a resume either, but the cover letter thing is particularly a struggle for me because of what you just said, right? You're, you're trying to sell like, oh, you're the top company that I'm going after. And I'm like, this doesn't feel genuine. I'm telling this to 10 other employers. Like I'm just looking for a job. So it's one of these things like you're asking me to lie to you. And I don't enjoy that process like that, like authentically for me is not, not an enjoyable thing. So my question is, do they matter? Are they a key piece of the process? Should they matter whether they do or they don't? Should they even matter? My quick answer is no. <laughs> no, they don't matter. No, they shouldn't no, they, matter. No, they don't matter. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I knew it. <laughs> done. Um, I, I will tell you for me personally, I don't really look at them. I don't put a lot of focus on them. Um, I think they can be important when you are trying to explain to an employer why you are switching to a completely different field or industry. Um, maybe you're trying to tie in. Yes, I've been in accounting, but I've been so passionate. I, I love the detail orientation of, um, doing something in a more engineering capacity. I furthered my education, gotten my degree, and now I'm, I'm in engineering. Those types mm -hmm. of explanations, mm -hmm. I think, are, can be important. But overall, um, especially if you're spending a lot of time on cover letters, I wouldn't do it. I would spend most of the time, most of my time, looking at the job description, figuring out what the keywords are in that job description, and getting that in my resume. Um, if I am putting key phrases and don't, you know, you don't, you don't ever have to be a perfect match for the job that you're applying to. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you have done things that are listed on the job des- description, but you've done it in a different capacity, either in your free time or with an employer, get that at the top portion of your resume. Just make sure, uh, you know, always consider people who are looking at your resume. They, they have such a short attention span only mm-hmm. because they're either they're super busy because they're either covering for the position um, and they don't have a lot of time. Uh, or they have a lot of applications that they're going through, or it's or it's a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. So if you want to make it easy for yourself and easy for your potential future employer, get as much information quickly at the top of the resume of how the job description resonated with your experience. Help us not do that guesswork for you, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it'll help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that like being able to quickly scan and read over, which is another point to why they suggest to keep your resume on the shorter side, right? One to two pages. And that can be hard if you have a lot of experience or you've got a lot of different experience across different companies that you want to showcase. Like I I can see how people get crazy long resumes and then you're, you're hunting for things like... Mm -hmm. So the advice that is often out there as well is customizing your resume for every position that you're applying for. What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent do that. Uh, I've seen some, some strange piece of, pieces of advice out there, or I've seen some um, resumes that have made me wonder where they got the advice to, to do it in that style. Um, I would say always, if, if there's anything you could spend your time on, is tailoring each resume and saving each individual resume that you have done. Um, Get a file folder together on your desktop uh, so that you can take every resume and put that, because most likely if you are looking for a particular job, you're gonna see repeat in the words that um, are in the job descriptions. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time. And it is always easier to edit than it is to create. So um, just always get those uh, resumes that you've worked on, especially if you spend a lot of time in them, get them saved, date them, put the employer uh, as, as this, the name just uh, for the saved file and everything like that. And, and you'll be doing yourself some favors that the um, resume creation process will get faster and faster because you have more resources. You've, you've created this pool. I, I have resumes from easily 10 years ago, um, because I just transfer it from computer to computer. So I've stolen things. <laughs> I'll, I'll steal from myself any day. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Right. You, you created it in the first place. You're just recycling. That's all. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so, so do that, do that favor for yourself. It's a good way to keep yourself organized in this process. So when you're talking about customizing them, you're you're looking for keywords. So almost like you're matching your experience to the same wording that they used in the description. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're suggesting? Mm -hmm. Uh, What about like even the professional summary? Do you recommend doing revamp there too? Or should that kind of stay static? I, I would see a resume as being fluid. Again, I don't want anybody to over-exaggerate skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I firmly believe in honesty mm-hmm. um, because that over-exaggeration, uh, I'm not saying you need to pr- be in perfect alignment with the job description, mm-hmm. but I, that over-exaggeration, once you get into a position and you're told to do a task and you have no idea how to do it, and it is the main function of the position, that stuff gets figured out really, really quickly and it wastes everybody's time. Um, but if 
you can see a lot of correlation with your experience. I, a, a perfect example, I had somebody um, who it, was applying for um, a project manager position mm-hmm. and was coming to me asking me for some advice and they've been uh, kind of a, a manager of managers type role. And project management, as we, as a lot of people know, is, oh gosh, so much of it is being organized, having a project, mm-hmm. and keeping other people on track. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you're also most likely having to give tasks to people who maybe are not invested in the project. Mm-hmm. So when you are a manager of managers and you're in, uh, instituting policy, you've got to get a lot of buy-in from your managers, which in essence is a lot of project management. So Mm -hmm. kind of figure out what is it about your current position that is similar, that has that transferable skills. And when you really start driving down or having conversation with your friends or family about Mm -hmm. how you feel like the jobs overlap with each other, what you are in and what you're looking to do, have those conversations out loud you're going to be really surprised at how much overlap there is in most positions. I mean, there's a technical aspect that's mm-hmm. going to be very different, most likely, but the customer service pieces of it, probably some key uh, interactions, are, are there's going to be a lot of overlap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's an interesting thing when pivoting, right? When you're pivoting yes. from one industry to another, that I do wish there was more communication around. Cause I, when I talk to people that are looking for jobs or hiring for jobs, they get so stuck in the, oh, well, they don't have airline industry. And right. I'm like, okay. And like <laughs> you learned the industry. Why couldn't somebody else learn the industry? Like every industry has its own quirks about it. And if you can manage a project, you can manage a project regardless of in industry. You just need to know the nuances and you pick those up as you go. But the, the block almost of industry experience still baffles and surprises me sometimes. Do you think that there's any way to move past that conversation? Like to get people to understand that industry is industry and to be more open to people coming out of other ones when they're trying to a project manager position or uh, other ones that would be really good HR, right? It's HR is HR, depending, like it's the company. When you learn new things with every single one. I feel like sometimes it has to be a, a, a lesson. At times it can be a lesson for the hiring manager to learn um, when they are very specifically focused on what they feel is the perfect candidate versus having more of an open mind. Um, they'll start having consequences to that, there's going to be a lack of candidates. The few that they interview, um, I know I've dealt with um, hiring managers that they want somebody, or they're looking at candidates that have 15 to 20 years at the same company. Mm. And they start to learn that they can't compete with the pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the, the position does not require 15 to 20 years of experience in said position. Um, they'll start seeing that um, there might be a lack of adaptability because that person has not gone into any, they've been dealing with the same um, group of like same company for so long. And even though the players may have changed, they've been in a, their adaptability could be pretty low and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, have difficulty to change. 
So I feel like, and there's sometimes um, when uh, recruiters are going through this process, yes, we can bring that to the hiring manager's attention, but mm -hmm. we might have to continue down that journey and move on to other candidates until the pieces that they're missing, they start picking up mm -hmm. uh, because the position's been open for way too long. It's a tough one. It's such mm -hmm. a tough one because sometimes hiring managers are so can be stubborn. I just like anybody in any industry. <laughs> what? They're humans doing human jobs? Weird. Um, and I try to use as much humor and finesse as I possibly can in those situations, but sometimes they just have to go through the interview process. Um, and for anyone listening who is looking at recruiting roles, those are the types of things that you just have to weather through. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually... Um, most people do, again, once you approach all of this stuff with a lot of kindness uh, and patience and everything like that, a lot of times they do, they figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You learn from your mistakes, hopefully, anyway, <laughs> at least being open to it. Uh, so then let's move on to the workplace culture and being a female in a couple of pretty heavily male-dominated industries recently, and your current role excluded from that. What was that like working in those industries, working with those hiring managers? And I know for you, diversity and inclusion is something that's important. So, and we both worked together at some places that that was not, yeah. not priority. So what was that like for you? Oh, you know, it, it can be difficult. And when those male dominated type industries, especially when you're trying to recruit from school level and even the students. Uh, are mostly uh, male and everything. And um, you might get a couple females and you work very hard with the managers and everything to really share you know, strengths and qualities. And a lot of times with, with managers, even though it's, it's, it might be a male dominated type industry, a lot do actually want the diversity within mm -hmm. their group. Um, but it's tough, especially in specialized fields that are really not focused on men, but just traditionally they are. Um, it's just hard. And then as soon as you see a female candidate, you get so excited. I mean, I, I would get so excited and just push that resume out to as many people as possible um, who are willing to bring, who um, could do that and, and have an open position and possibly bring that diversity there. Um, but um, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Um, you can't create diversity in any kind of industry. Um, I mean, you can, but it just takes a lot of time. It's recruiting on the high school level, um, even getting in touch with potential candidates in grade schools so that they can understand what's available and, and how there can be more diversity. It does not have to be. We don't need those male dominated um, industries, we can, we can break through. Mm -hmm. so it of, yeah, it does take a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And I think, so I was having an interesting conversation with somebody the other day. And, uh, one of the things that we were talking about, cause she is a woman of color in uh, UI design mm -hmm. and that is still a male dominated industry. We only have 16% of the tech industry being people of color and, there's a tokenism aspect that she was talking about and that fear of the people of even trying to go into that industry. Cause they're like, I don't want to be the first. 
right? I don't want to be the token. I don't want that emotional work and responsibility to be put on me because this company has now decided it's 2021 and they're going to fix the diversity. And there's still some lack of understanding of what that actually means. So here in this moment, what do you have any thoughts of like how we can bridge that gap? So the companies can step up and do better and that want to create that diversity and maybe alleviate some of that fear from the other side of being the first and being treated like a token in an industry. I feel like when those situations come up to try to alleviate some of that, I would encourage anybody to reach out to their human resources department. A lot of times there are, there's representation in those departments that, you know, if you go, you have a confidential conversation, um, ask those questions. And I, I hesitate to say that because I, I can't speak for all of them. Um, I have been lucky enough to work um, with HR departments that would take that very seriously um, and would try what they could um, to hopefully help that person feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't say that's going to happen in every single company. Um, I think think maybe even um, it, maybe it's a conversation with the hiring manager. Uh, because there's a reason why that your interview, you, you did well and you got selected for the position. So maybe it's having a conversation with the hiring manager um, and seeing what kind of resources could be utilized to make it a more um, engaging department. I, no matter what, this is not a comfortable topic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's tough to be the first. It really is. Um, or to hear the ridiculous stories of, you know, the last person who was of that color or that gender and how they did or didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. almost like putting you in that box that, well, you're probably going to have the same outcome, right? Because it's the same, almost like it's the same person, which is just this, it's so ridiculous to even make that assumption, mm-hmm. but it happens it happens. And yeah. it is something that to a certain extent we, we do in very, it, it could be in, um, in, in very, you know, simplistic situations, but it, it, it can happen in these big situations also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I have a perfect answer for that. I think it's, it's about figuring out that is the situation that you're currently in, that you are starting to feel uncomfortable and, you know, who, establishing who you feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, I can make the assumption that it's an HR department or an HR representative because of confidentiality and having those tough conversations, but it could be the hiring manager. It could be a, a manager that you are dealing with in another department who is recognizing that something's going on in your current group. Mm-hmm. I, there's just no easy answer for that one. Yeah, there's not an easy answer. And we have a long road ahead of us, I think. And these conversations and starting them and asking the questions and companies and hiring managers asking themselves the questions of, well, diversity is important to me, but that's not really what's happening here. What are we missing? What are we not doing that's making people feel included or comfortable applying here or interested in working here? Because I don't think that anymore it's disinterest in whole industries. Like there is definitely interest in industries, 
but people are struggling to get jobs with companies because they're new to the industry or because of other confirmation biases that are occurring and not being checked. Mm -hmm. Like there's tons of candidates out there that just are struggling to even get in the door. So as your career has progressed and as a woman in the, in this world, do you feel like work is better? Do you feel like cultures are changing and do you think the trajectory will continue? I think it is. I think, uh, I I think we've got a long way to go regardless. Um, but I'm appreciative of the acknowledgement and, um, that there are companies out there that are really looking to recognize and um, that like in Colorado, the Pay Equity Act, mm-hmm. um, I think that is an amazing, um, an amazing thing to put into place. And uh, because I think it's right and I think it's fair uh, for companies to not only disclose um, starting salary, but to maintain it as well regardless of um, who applies, because I think that really it, it helps companies keep themselves aware uh, and not offer or get too much into that negotiations of, of pay. I don't want to shortchange anyone's experience. However, the position requires this much experience just because you have so many more years of experience. If you want to be part of this culture, um, maybe you do, uh, you're, you're okay with that pay cut and everything. And if you're not, then you find out where your culture is or where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there are small steps that are being taken mm-hmm. uh, and that we're starting to recognize, um, you know, some of the things that we've been doing for so many decades. Um, so I'm excited about the, the where we're going but it's just going to take a really long time um, for us to get over some biases that we've had mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> On that Pay Equity Act, I, I think that there are a lot of good things that are coming out of that. I think I personally 100% think that everybody should be posting pay ranges for the jobs that they have that they're posting. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I also don't think that companies need to be asking what people are currently making or what they want to make, because that's how you continue this cycle of underpayment. And because they're like, oh, well, you're only currently being paid this. So I can get away with only paying you this and you like it because it's more, but I like it because I get to pay less. And I understand that from a business aspect, you do want to save the money, right? And more money is good for somebody. And that's not equity. That's not actually solving the problems that we have with the pay equity gap or any of the other pieces that are there at work. And also posting it, you eliminate all these people that you're either like, they realize, oh, you're not going to hire me because you're way overpaying. So you actually want more experience or you're way underpaying. I'm not going to bother applying. Like, I'm not interested in applying for this because you're only paying in this pay range and you don't waste anybody's time in that. I struggle to understand companies' resistance to posting pay ranges. I feel like um, it, it can, it, it leads to a lot of, of hidden information. Mm-hmm ability to um, do more negotiations to get the candidate that they want, um, which ultimately I, I can say that and it sounds like, well, hey, 
if it's the candidate I want, I should mm-hmm. be able to pay them however much I want. But yeah. you'll start seeing, um, they'll, they'll start being a very similar gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you're going to lose that diversity and everything. Um, when most likely when you have an open position and you've got a couple hundred applications in there or even 50, you've got more than one good candidate in that pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could be just because you've um, maybe worked with them at some other company uh, or what have you. I'm not, I don't want to take away from that experience, but um, there could be somebody who is just looking for that chance, um, has more cultural alignment as opposed to stealing from another company mm-hmm. um, because you've worked with that person before. So it's tough. Yeah. It's really tough. But I think overall, um, that visibility of pay, I think, I think it speaks volumes. And I think it's a good, uh, it's a good direction to go because I, I, I've seen those things and I've heard about those negotiations and all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, I would say fairly for anybody because it's stressful on both sides when you're in negotiation, it's, it's painful and it's uncomfortable. We don't like to be in conflict. It's not an enjoyable space for humans. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do you wish that you'd known when you started your career? If you could uh, give yourself advice now, looking back, what would it be? I think um, any, most people's career path is not a straight line. And don't ever think that sidestepping or doing something new, starting at the beginning again, is anything um, that isn't challenging, that is a reflection on, on you. Um, you know, to have the courage to change careers, uh, to think that you knew if anybody is going to college or thinking about college or what have you, that when you are 18, 19 years old, if you're doing it, you know, immediately after high school, that you knew exactly what you should be spending lots of money on that you're going to be doing for the rest of your life because you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that that's, it's all good. It's okay. It's all part of life. It's all part of the experience. Um, I have sidestepped in some fields and, and done some things other than recruiting for a couple of years. And I just always gravitated to this a little, um, and it's, it just, I finally decided it is what I'm passionate about, um, and other aspects of HR as well, but recruiting is, is what keeps drawing me in. So, um, I think it's that forgiveness, not only in your um, application and interview process, but also in your career, arguably in your life. Um, Yeah, great point, great point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I just, when you, when you do different things and you're utilizing um, different aspects of your personality, even different parts of your brain to get your job done, I congratulate yourself all the time, every time to mm-hmm. make those changes is hard, um, but it's worthwhile. And you'll be really surprised at the previous industry that you were in and you make changes. You'll be so surprised at the overlap that was always there. Yeah. Um, customer service in a lot of regards is customer service, how yeah. you treat external versus um, 
uh, internal, your coworkers and everything like that. There's so much overlap. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I, I, I fell into, especially um, once I got out of college that I, I just had a certain path and I actually went in a couple different directions mm-hmm. and I, it's, it takes a while to forgive yourself for that sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. Well, I think the importance of the nonlinear path is huge because there's so much of American culture and society that says you do the things, right? You, you have a, you have a plan, you have a trajectory and you just go, just just don't think about it anymore. And that's not, that's so rare, right? That's, I think I know, I don't know, in my entire life of people I have known, I think I've known less than a handful of people that they knew what they wanted to do. They did it. They're still doing it. Oops, looks like we got cut off there in the recording, so entered the awkward segue. I wanted to thank Michelle for her time today and willingness to share her experiences with us. I hope that the episode provided you insights and gave you hope in your job search. This isn't an easy process. Remember, be gentle with yourself and forgive yourself often. Join me on Patreon for a bonus episode with Michelle where we talk about college, spending non-traditional experience, and salary negotiation tips. I'm grateful for your time today, and I hope you come back again. Until next time, keep living audaciously.